this, 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 this show is brought to you by Safety FM. Welcome to Unapologetically Bold, I'm Not Sorry For. If you are a person that is tired of apologizing for being you, you know, the human part of you that sometimes feels like it has to be different at home versus work versus play, the human side that just wants to be hot, humble, open, and transparent about your wants, desires, and uniqueness. If you answered yes, this is for you. Join me, Emily Elrod, as I dive into conversations with amazing guests about what they are not sorry for in creative and loving ways. Let's get started. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another Unapologetically Bold I'm Not Sorry For. And I'm so blessed today to have a new friend here with me, Brian. Welcome, Brian. Thanks for having me, Emily. This is going to be a fun conversation because <laughs> I don't even know still how we got connected, but I did not even i guess linkedin stock you or whatever beforehand but you have like these amazing accolades ahead of and you're just the first time i met you and i've told you this and um you're one of the most unique people in your curiosity and how you care and just your constant learning and i can get that in a quick sense and i've told you this there's very few people i've got that that quick hit of or vibe from so I'm excited for my listeners to learn about you today. So for the people that don't know who you are, Brian, just give a little background. Well, um, you know, first and foremost, I, I am a husband, I am a father, and I'm a coach, teach, and mentor. And really, I've made it kind of my life's work to help others as they strive to reach their potential. Uh, what I'm able to share is, is the wisdom gained from having a really unique background and experience combined with just a lot of self-study. So I spent 22 years in the military where I retired as a Lieutenant Colonel in Special Forces. And the last job I had, I ran selection for Special Forces. And one of the things that we really emphasized there was the character or the makeup of, of the people we were selecting. And then I've been able to turn that into an opportunity to work in the NFL for the past seven years. Uh, two with Cleveland and the last five with uh, Indianapolis Colts in roles culminating and now the director of team development for the Indianapolis Colts. That's so cool. And what it makes me think of is a book that you actually recommended, The Art of Impossible. That is so good. It, uh, listeners, yeah. if you've not checked out that book, it it is a top recommend. But one of the things it also talked about in there is about how the having more of a diverse background and how it can help you get and to see more in the process in essence like you can what i've i've found and what i've seen is that people that are big generalists and then come down after figuring out what their passion is and what their their gifts and talents are and that's what i see from you and also is why you can be so good and be so quick on figuring out what people need but there are some key important things we know that talent has to be there for you uh, but i really want to just dive on in what you are not sorry for so brian the question is what are you no longer apologizing for well i am not sorry for overemphasizing the importance of character in the player evaluation process mm, tell me more well i mean it's a game of talent you know, I've been fortunate to work in two fields where the product of the of the business is the talent you feel. 
whether that be, you know, Green Berets and Special Forces or, um, you know, players on the football field. Um, that's, but I would say this, character is not a substitute for a talent. I kind of look at it like purchasing a car. You know, your talent is like your base model, but I, I want to I upgrade it with character. And you know, really the reason why I think character is so important in that process is something that it's kind of a, a conversation that I have with our general manager, Chris Ballard. And he basically said, you know, you're trying to take information in time period zero and to pick and predict in time periods one and two where a player is going to what the level of play is going to be. And that ceiling is their talent. That's the highest they possibly can achieve. And one of the things that he said believes and I and I believe, too, is that their floor is their character. So that creates the kind of the range in which a player can express. And then I think where you get some synergies is when you put a lot of people around together that have a similar mindset. They've been acquired because they value the same things. We put them into a building where we emphasize things. And I think it creates culture. We have a strong development and performance culture centered around the character and makeup of our players. And I think that's so powerful. Something that comes to my mind is a quote that I heard the other day. And it was basically going off of that saying one bad apple can ruin the whole bunch. But the the thing is that it went even farther. It's like, why are we producing trees that produce bad apples? And it comes down to the roots of it and the character and the culture that you want to create for people. So what are some things that you have found are some underlining characteristics that you just need, just general people that you wish people could have more of or would focus in more on? Um, there are six things, and I, don't, I think maybe six is too many to go into. You can tell me that. Um, but I'll start with the one that I think is most important. Um, as I look back through a person's background, I look at the people, places, and events that have ultimately resulted in the person, the player they've become today. And some of the best, to include Green Berets and NFL players, have used adversity as a teacher. And they, they have grown from that. We, we commonly call that post-traumatic growth. And it's during that time, I think, that they learn a lot about themselves. And that process of recovering back to baseline and creating that growth, they become more resilient over time. And we all need to increase our resilience because it's at the edge of our ability, the boundaries of the ability that we set for ourselves or allow others to set for us where opportunity exists. So in order to go to the edge, you have to be resilient because it's going to be uncomfortable. And that's really kind of, if you want to know if you're getting it right, it should be a little uncomfortable. Yep. And that's what we always say is we want you in between nausea and excitement. It's enough Perfect. that just makes you queasy, but it's like you're excited and you know that you're pushing yourself past that zone. And it also makes me think of um, specifically my daughter and she is seven and people may think I'm crazy for this, but like, I'm happy that she's starting to see adversity at a young age. Um, Because what I have seen is I didn't get adversity and I didn't learn how to go through it until I was in my twenties and I had a child out of wedlock in the South while teaching Bible study. And so needless to say, I had to learn a lot real quick. 
Um, but talk about that with young players. They're not hit, and and I guess also my experience also that I'm seeing with the athletes that I do work with in the collegiate realm, they're not getting adversity until they start to hit college. What are some things that you can help, even if it's the parents, to not helicopter or what whatever advice you want to give? Um, I don't want to put words in your mouth to help their kids be okay with adversity because we're seeing a stark hard hit with increased anxiety yeah. because they don't know how to deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, there is, there's a great book. I think it's called the gift of failure and it's written by, I believe the former Dean of admissions for Stanford university. And one of the things that she talks about is how in order to go to a top level institution like that, that your life is essentially on rails from five years on five years old on you're you're hitting these developmental milestones that are going to set the conditions so that you ultimately can be competitive in this in this uh, application process and one of the problems that i think she articulated well was is that we continue to push people farther and farther right in life much like what you said and they don't experience adversity and i and i i I may be mixing this up a bit, but the, the general, her general thoughts were, and I, I agree with this, is that the farther you go right in life without struggle, the less your capacity to handle it because the stakes are higher. The stakes are higher. And so one of the things I think, and you, you can talk about parents and you can talk about coaches, but we're all, we, what's, what's the saying, you know, don't prepare the road for the child, prepare the child for the road. And that's what we need to do and, and 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 look at adversity as a good thing. It's an opportunity for them to go out there and to develop the capacity for resilience. And when you find that coaches are optimizing at a too low a level or parents are really trying to do too much, it reduces the athlete or the child's ability to develop the capacity for resilience. They can't problem solve for themselves because what they've been taught to do is every time they hit a bump is to look external for solutions. So I, I think they lack that that internal locus of control or that belief that through their merit and through their actions, they control their own destiny. Mm, and it's so powerful. And also, also we've seen is it impacts their confidence. And if they want to play sure. at that level, they have to have the ability to have choice and so that they can be confident in their and what they can do, not just on the field, but off the field as well. So what's another, um, you said you have six. So what's another one? Uh, you know, I, you know, the one thing that I think is the most, I think the most fundamental demand of excellence in any field is desire. I mean, I, when you look at the grace, they just have unnatural levels of desire. They, they have these highly, I think you understand what I say. They have these highly dopaminergic personalities. They're driven. They have insatiable desire. They want, they want, they want. And, and, and unfortunately, in some cases, it can be unhealthy, but that's the nature of it. So the first thing I think it's foundational is desire. You've got to want it because that motivation, that desire, that drive is central to developing high character resilience. And I think those there's a specific type of drive that's most important, and that's one that's more innate. And, and, it's, and it's based on internal factors and internal drive. The problem with being motivated by external factors, such as the like button on a social media or what someone else says about you, is you're, then what you're doing is you're making your motivation contingent upon the beliefs of others. 
in which so in it, it you can't have just the good not the bad once you develop this thirst for it you know you can't turn it off when it's not flowing well so my belief is your desire has to be you have to go for the nuclear option right you have to develop this innate drive that's going to fuel your success mm, and that's so powerful and so my listeners know that i'm a huge nerd on all this um but it's that we call it dopamine is the the rah-rah teenage cheerleader of the body is that it is true those people they just want those quick hits but it, it's more than that. It, it is these hits because dopamine actually has a, a great advantage because it helps you connect dots a whole lot better and it helps you to be quicker. However, that internal such is what we call as oxytocin, our loving grandmother. It is that internal love with every yourself because it, you're a husband. You know this as well. So anybody that's been married the first day or whenever you said I do was really more of a dopamine whenever you actually have had all those years with your spouse and like true love is whenever you're enduring through the suck, whenever you got to clean their puke off the ground, whenever you got to like clean the snotty noses, like the fun, the stuff that you don't want to do going back to adversity. And so it's continuing that, that, that drive, like you said, but it's also, I want to talk about flow, how important it is for, we can nerd out on this probably hardcore, but getting your body and your conditions right to stack your biochemicals in your favor and so just quickly talk about that on what are some i don't want to call it cheat codes but what are some ways that we can expedite these learning these learning procedures for people um whenever or maybe stop them ahead of time like the dopamine like the likes and stuff like so that. So I'll tell you a quick story how you can increase like your performance through like creating the conditions for flow or just learning in general. Last year we were at a game, we were at a away game, and I asked a couple players on the sideline. I said, "Do you remember locking your doors at the airport?" And nobody, not one person, remembered it. And why did they not form a memory around that? Is because they were on autopilot. And they were not using any sensory input during the course of doing that. So it was just basically they were in automatic mode, right? And that's not learning. That's just execution. So we did the same. I said, next week when you go to lock your car, put your thumb on the door and say door. To say latch or say handle. And so I did that. And now months later, you can still ask them and they all have a very vivid piece of imagery in their mind of that event. And so I, sell, I tell you all of that to tell you this is that we have to use our five senses and you could add a six with some sort of intuitive feel, but to come to the moment. And I like to use like a, a dashboard. You know, we all like to use speedometers or RPMs or whatever. But I like to think of the three us's on the dashboard of performance. And, you know, on the on the left side of that is, is the past. That's where frustration and anger live that's the critic i call that person the critic that's the first you and there's this other you on the other end of the spectrum who's the planner and that's where fear and anxiety exists it's in the future right and our mind is constantly going and flickering those ways but if you want to create flow if you want to increase your ability to learn it's your you the conditions must be set by being present in the moment everything you do has to bring you into the present so Almost everything we do with players and the people that I talk to and coach, it's it's for them to have that awareness of when their attention is out of the present 
to capture it and bring it back to the moment. Because that's really, you know, when you get when you kind of integrate that with the resilience piece, there's really four opportunities, I think, to kind of grow on a resilient side. One is we want to increase our skill or our baseline of our baseline of resilience. So it, it encompasses the natural adversity of day to day. Secondly, we want to reduce the spike. I like to think of that cardiac spike that you would see on an EKG, how high that spike goes in relation to a negative event, you know, and that's awareness because that's that. That's that sympathetic response. I want to map that and understand it. And what I want to do is I very quickly want to create a parasympathetic counter response to bring it back. So I want to get back to baseline as quick as possible. That is resilience. How quickly can you return to baseline? And so one is high baseline, you know, reduce the level of the spike, return quicker, but then create the post-traumatic growth that, you know, fuels my, resi my uh, resilience in the future. Mm. I love that. Oh, anybody that knows me knows I absolutely love everything that you said because it's so important. We talk about getting your home state before home plate, homeostasis, getting your body back to that home state and how important it is for you to own you instead of letting your environment own you. Um, it also makes me think of I never play video games, but I played this Nintendo 64, like the old Donkey Kong or this weekend. And I was like, Oh, I was like, I'm about to lose my Christianity over this one because like, <laughs> me, you know, but also I think something that's very interesting in all of this is the exposure, making yeah. sure you do expose yourself to harder things in it going back to your beginning, what we were talking about resilience with it all. So um, I want to go on to the third one. What's the third one? I love everything that you're saying. We may have to do a second half of this. And, and these kind of overlap and they, you know, and they're, they're, they build upon each other. But the third thing you find is incredible work habits or stamina. They just, they, they don't get bored with the details. They don't get tired with the effort. And, and one of the challenges we have is when we do this cost benefit analysis as, you know, think of this inverted U, right? If we do this cost benefit analysis, as we get better, one unit of effort gives us one unit of skill. But as you get better, it's like one unit gives you a half, one unit gives you a quarter, one unit gives you now a, a hundredth of a unit of skill. And what they do is we get to the point where we, we do the cost benefit analysis and we say, well, it's really not worth, the juice isn't worth the squeeze, right? But the problem is when you get to the elite level, those small incremental gains in ability that you make have an outsized you know, uh, in your ability to perform. That's where you differentiate yourself. So I think you see incredible work habits, uh, they make, which fuels their skill gain. And really, which gets into the fourth one is they really are smart in their field. And when I say smart, I'm not talking about like the crystallized intelligence you would get in the SAT or ACT, but more of the fluid intelligence that you would see from developing these vast mental models of their activity. They have, they have these, you know what, I think everybody knows what mental models are. They're a concept that we can use to understand, give to give broader context for analysis and understanding of something. So they have these incredible mental models. And what they do is they have more detail and they see opportunities and patterns that others don't see. You know, if you think about it, you know, uh, when, when Tom Brady now is what, 43 years old? I don't think his physical skills are what they once were, but I'd be willing to bet that his mind is as sharp as ever. And and that and when he looks at a field, he probably with a glance intuits more than most of us. We could write a book on what he just like 
sees and interprets without even consciously processing it. So he's got these huge mental models of sport. And I think that's cool, too, because the one thing that in sport that a lot of people think is that we want to think <laughs> we actually on the field. We kind of don't, because if you are thinking, if you have to go into your prefrontal cortex, you're screwed. Um, especially like the Colts, people coming at you at no. blistering speeds, you can't no. think. And so that's no. where your habits come into to to very importance of much importance. Yeah. And it also makes me think, too, this is one of my passions is whenever I have top performers is after the season, especially if they're very superstitious, is having them do a rundown, teach others, especially in your group. On what are some of your ways? It may not be the correct way, but it's your way. We all have mm -hmm. our processes. Mm -hmm. And that I know that we talk about a lot of competitive edge and we can get very comparative with one another. But what have you seen in just in your group on group think or group learning, like learning with each other, not against each other, if that makes well, sense? Well, you know, I mean, I, I think that's probably the ultimate goal uh, of team sports, whether that be a special forces team conducting a direct action mission or an offensive decent defensive unit on the field, it's called share. And in my mind, it's called shared cognition. We all are seeing the world through the same lens. We're interpreting and seeing the same opportunities and patterns, you know, and it, you know, and I think Kotler in one of his books talks about like group flow. You know, I think we all understand like individual flow. We all have been like in the zone where, time suspended you know we just feel it feels effortless but what is a team but this cooperative mechanism trying to achieve a goal what if we all can have shared cognition and we see and interpret the world in a very similar manner uh, there is redundancy in systems but most systems and the more complex they are they're easily disrupted by just just unraveling a small piece of that Yep. The more complex, the easier it actually is. And it's, yeah. and which sounds so counterintuitive. Sure. Um, so we did four, what's the fifth one? So the fifth one would be is I think they're just, the greats are just, they're known for their ability to focus. They kind of, if they go into something, whether if I'm going to learn golf, I'm going to learn golf. I'm going to read the five best books on golf. I'm going to watch every video I can on golf. I'm going to go out and practice in the range. They don't get tired. Their ability to kind of focus, put the blinders on and exclude everything else. Um, as much as a, our brains love novelty, uh, it can be the enemy of perfection in a lot of fields. Uh, so we, we, I like to think of in my own, in my own sense, I, I want to be like the developmental model. I call it the T model. The T model means I have this broad range of knowledge and a lot of things, but I need one specialty, one vertical that I have deep subject matter expertise in and so i think whatever that is for the athlete i mean they have to have that one vertical they have that build that ability to focus and really it's you know uh there's a lot of people out there that talk about like attention is the currency of performance right i heard that on a podcast recently by eric quorum and, and he's right where you spend your time attention and energy uh i mean that really tells you what's important in life and it, i think the best have the ability to kind of drill in focus and, and push out all of the noise. And I think that makes me go to the thought process of having core values or, or knowing what your truths are as almost like a filter for quicker decision making. Do you sure. see that with your athletes or yourself? Like, yeah, 
We do. I mean, in fact, that's an exercise that we will do is, and, and I recommend everybody, you know, before you head into troubled waters or difficult situations, really reflect upon the things that are important to you. Mm -hmm. What's what's really important to you? And then kind of do that self audit and see how are you using, utilizing your resources? Are you, are you spending them accordingly? A lot of people will say X, Y, or Z is important, but then when you look at their body of work, you don't find, you don't find that same level of commitment. So to me, don't tell me what's important to you. Show me. Yep. You know? Yeah. Um, we use that a lot. And that's very easy in corporate world, especially whenever they mm -hmm. say some things are top priorities. I'm like, oh, show me your budgets. Um, yeah. <laughs> let's actually oh, see what it is. It's really, you know, it's really important. Like, you know, everybody will say my, my, my people are my our, our greatest asset. Well, let's, well, let's look at that. Let's, let's, let's unpack that, you know. And, and sometimes they say it, but they don't mean it. And I think that's one of the things as, as leaders and, and like one of the things I found in, in our culture is, is you'll find a lot of congruous between what we say is important and the decisions and the way we utilize our resources, the things we prioritize. Oh, yeah. And I'll say for us, the two big things is integrity that has to come in and with it and, and humility um because that ego can really can really take over so i think that's five what's number six what's the last one to me i call it leadership call it the x factor i can call it a multiplier but the greats not only are they great but they make those around them better too whether that's what they communicate the way they prepare the way they play but we all know it like i remember whenever i got the special forces i thought and I know I was, I was very self-driven. I, I wanted to work hard. I, I could do that without being around people. But I found that once I got into an environment where there were other people like that, I raised my game even more. And so to me, multi, they have this multiplying effect. They, whether it's the way they communicate, the way they interact, the, the, something about them, but they make the people around them better. And if you think about it, every team's got four or five guys, every, Every corporation is likely got, you know, I mean, when you look at there's there's these key people that have an outsized impact on the success of the organization. And those are your multipliers. I love it. Um, I actually, again, back to my, my kids, I teach this in, in corporate, too, but the mirroring neurons of our brain and what we are. We want to emulate what we are around. I also make this horrible joke. If you're around nine broke people, you're about to be the 10th one. You know, it's who we are around. And I had this conversation, like I said, with my daughter, because we were at um, the lake house with some family and she started going out of character. And I told her, I'm like, you're the leader. If you want to be the leader, you need to emulate that. You know that these are not to your standards. I know she's seven, but and even my son at 10. But for me, it's very important at a young age to teach my kids character and understanding how our body works and how we can be better and more beneficial for it and utilizing our physiology to our advantage, too. So especially with those people that have those leadership skills, put them in the ability to influence others. They may not be good sometimes at managing people. Mm -hmm. But if they have the ability to continue to influence for a positive and grow yeah. the performance, heck yeah, like put them out there, let them be mm -hmm. where the people are. That's you said the key thing, because, you know, I think any definition of leadership must include influence. But you can be an influencer without being a leader. Mm -hmm. And what leaders do is get people to accomplish the mission. 
And I think that's really when you talk about the integrity of a leader um, or if you think about leaders who go afoul, one of the things that I think we all struggle with is when we look at a person and we look at their actions, we try to understand their motivations and intentions. And long as we know that they're honorable, noble, and you know, support a just cause, I think we're, we're willing to kind of, we can get behind that. It's when the ego comes in and it becomes self-serving that I think we struggle because you're, yeah, I mean, and some of those leaders can be hugely successful, you know, uh, but, you know, think about Enron or I just watched the, the Netflix special on DeLorean or, or some of those others. But I think a better example of, of like what a true influencer is, is somebody like Warren Buffett, you know, one of the richest people in the world, three times he has lost more than 50% of his wealth and he never deviated from like his investment thesis. You know, he's, he's not dogmatic. He learns but he stayed true to his principles. He didn't chase the emotion or the ego mm -hmm. of the situation. And he's been, he's able to turn it in. He's the third richest man in the world. And he's done it by doing right, not only by himself, but by his shareholders. Mm -hmm. And that's so important just to key in on that is that I think that one hits on almost all your characteristics too, is yeah. the habits, the desire going in that the, the failure that comes in with it. And sure. just the consistent and the habits. So oh, I'm so grateful for you, Brian. I know we're at the end of our, our time, but two part final question. First part, people are apologizing for overemphasizing character. They may feel like it's too fluffy or it, like it may go with, uh, goes against what some other coaches may be teaching. Like, what would you tell them? I, I, I just think that once you've answered the, the talent question, is this person good enough? Are they skilled enough to perform this job at this level or whatever? That character then just becomes a, a, multi, a multiplier of that. Mm -hmm. You know, I think, you know, and, and so what I think is once you cross that talent threshold, people want to continue like to go higher and higher on the talent realm. Uh, but it really doesn't really necessarily, it's called threshold theory, I believe. But once you kind of cross that threshold, it's no longer predictive of success. So what if I've got this incredibly talented person and now I go and get this character, then I'm more likely to be able, I'm more comfortable predicting he can translate this talent into skill and his skill into performance. And he can do so in a way that's, that contributes to the success of the team. Mm, that's so important especially on that it's not this me it's this with we and it, it's not mm -hmm. the versus aspect of it which is i have seen being one of the biggest differentiator on people's successes and their performance um because you can't do it by yourself like yeah. even even the sports that are solo sports it's still not by themselves. they have a yeah. team that comes with them so and second part is if people love what you're saying um, how can they learn more about what you do or more about you or reach out well, they can connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, I, I really, I struggle to, to like, how do you learn more about me? I mean, like, why would you want to learn more about me? I'm just, I'm just like, we're, you know, I just have, I've, I've just got a really unique experience. Um, reach out to me there and I can, I can share with you uh, some of the things that have worked with me. Um, but I'm not so naive as to believe it'll work for everyone. Uh, just, you know, I've been, but the things that have, you know, I've, I've just been really lucky. I've had some great people along the way that have helped me and pointed me in the right direction, but most importantly, believed in me and, and maybe believed in me at times whenever I didn't believe in myself. 
And, uh, you know, that's who I really, that's who I really owe now. And there's six or eight of those folks that, you know, it's just been huge in my development, but reach out to me on LinkedIn. Um, and I, you know, I, I will try, I don't, I'm not quick to respond, you know, because of the volume of connections that you make, but I'll, I'll get, I'll get around to uh, responding. And, you know, uh, I do believe that a lot of what we've done has application in, in, in the personal professional world of many. Mm -hmm. I agree. And here we go. Just to end this out, did you hear his humility? I swear you're one of the most humble people. And the other thing I told this, this other guy that was very high ranking in uh, the military, and he said he's lucky. I'm like, I don't believe in luck. What I believe in is character and habits. Uh, which I think rounds this all out. You don't get to be in a room with people without having those. People will eventually find you out and see you out. So, Brian, I'm just honored to have you on today. And for all that listened in, I want to tell you, this guy, is, he's going to be continue to be a game changer. So tune in and watch him. Um, I, know that he, um, I know you're going to, again, probably have some humble statement with it, but I do thank you. No, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to... To talk about these topics this thing these things are near and dear to me and the one thing i would say on that all we can all of us can do a little more on is just bet on people mm. amen bet to on, that one. Bet, bet on bet on people ah and, and i think uh, that's a great way just to end this to say bet on people bet on the people around you and see the good 90% of people are amazing. Yes, there's this 10% headache population, but let's still bet on people and bet on the good. So thank you for all that listen in and all that will listen in later. I hope you have an amazing and blessed day. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Unapologetically Bold. I'm not sorry for. If this touched you in any way, please like and subscribe and share with your friends as we continue the message of being unapologetically bold by being hot humans who are humble, open, and transparent. See you next time.